Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Is the middle class better off today than it was, say, 30 years ago? Well, that's a really big question, and one we'll talk about on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. that will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. And of course, you can purchase classes there. And if you use the coupon code BLACKFRIDAY23 during the month of November 2023, you get 35% off. So even better than the podcast deal, you get 35% off. And those are great classes. It keeps the podcast free of charge. You get great content. You can also support the show by going to Spotify for Podcasters. You can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can click on the little heart button if you're watching on YouTube under the, under the video, the super thanks button. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Also purchase one of my books that make great gifts. But as always, painlessly, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can let people know you love it. You can share it around social media. You can leave it a review, a five-star review. You can leave a text review wherever you can. You can also comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And of course, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, this is kind of a hybrid show request show. I, I got this. Uh, this request to discuss this article, but I want to combine it with something else, and it's about the middle class in America, and this is part of a larger political phenomenon that's going on right now. What is happening to the middle class in America? If you go back to the 1990s, really if you go back to the 1960s, and you start talking about George Wallace, and you look at Wallace's political appeal, what was it? What was George Wallace tapping into in 1968 or 1972? Of course, uh, Wallace had been a longtime governor of Alabama. And if your knee-jerk reaction is say, well, he's tapping into race, people race. That's not what Wallace was appealing to outside of the South. In fact, George Wallace, even when he started running for governor, his, his first real campaign uh, was 1960, and he was defeated by John Patterson. And Patterson used the race card better than Wallace. In fact, Wallace didn't really use it at all. Uh, but I digress. What was interesting about George Wallace was that he was able to capitalize on blue-collar, middle-class frustration with American society. That was his appeal. This is when he goes on to the with William F. Buckley, and Buckley is so frustrated and flabbergasted because he can't understand what Wallace is doing. To Buckley, 
conservatism in America was free markets. It was, uh, you know, capitalism. It was big business, limited government in a way that Wallace didn't agree with. Now, Wallace, as a governor of a state, understood state powers and understood the relationship between federal and state powers better than William F. Buckley. Buckley uh, just didn't get why Wallace would want to spend state dollars on, say, an Alabama pension system or a community college system. In fact, the Alabama community college system is one of the best in the country. But he couldn't understand why someone like George Wallace would want to do that. And it's because Wallace was a middle-class advocate. It's what, it's how people gravitated to Wallace. And he was fighting the culture war back in the 60s and the 70s, not just on the race card. That was the, that what he's famous for or infamous for. But you look at his speeches, and he's talking about factory workers, and he's, he's railing against hippies and left-wing lunatics, and they would come to his rallies, and he would call them out, just like Donald Trump would do when he was when he's campaigning or when he was campaigning in 2016 or 2020 or now 2023, Donald Trump does the exact same thing. In fact, you could study George Wallace as a political operative and gain a lot of insight on how to, how to appeal to the masses in America. You see, what conservatives have long relied upon to win elections is low taxes, rah-rah military, and it's, it's us against them, but they don't really believe it. They're more inclined to forget about the culture war and rely on vague notions of you know, capitalism or, or 401ks or these kind of things, low taxes. And this does to appeal to a certain segment of the population. But for people who are watching, their lives transformed around them whether it's because they're consuming it through social media and this is what they think is actually happening in their community, or they're physically seeing it in their schools where their kids go to school, or they're watching it in their local community events where things are rapidly changing that they don't understand, or they're seeing demographic shifts, whatever it is. Things that are, that are affecting them, there's, tan there's a tangible effect upon their life. Or they're going to the grocery store and prices for your eggs and your meat and your fruit or whatever you're going to get has skyrocketed. You walk out, you spend $150 and get like three or four bags of food and that's it. And you're trying to think, well, this was my food budget. How can I stretch this now for everyone in my family? Even if you're trying to buy beans and rice, those things have gone up in price. So how do you, how do you, man, how do you negotiate this world that's being driven by out-of-control spending on all kinds of things, whether it's a war or whether it's a social program, it doesn't matter. You're being told, as a middle class, as just a conservative, you know, everyday middle class person, you don't really, you're not really that political, but you, you're traditional in a lot of ways. You just do traditional things. You're being told that you're kind of strange. You're a deplorable. This is what George Wallace was able to tap into back in the 1960s and 70s. And when Pat Buchanan gave his culture war speech in 1992, 
which was one of the most important speeches of the post-World War II world, he was, he was saying, you Republicans who are focusing on economics all the time are missing the bigger picture. You're missing the real destruction of America. It's being hollowed out from the inside. It's a cancer. Leftism is a cancer. It's not about the economics because Americans are willing to accept a certain amount of socialism. They are. And in fact, this is the great problem with the Republicans, and they know it. Americans are willing to accept it because they like certain parts of it. You go back to the 1930s, and you look at what some people said about the New Deal, for example. There was a certain racial tension with the New Deal in certain parts of the country because they thought that, well, only white Americans should get this, which, of course, is an issue. But the fact is, People liked the New Deal. They thought maybe it went too far. This is the issue, right? Republicans have, have quietly recognized that if they tear down some of these tenets of the left, there might be an even greater reaction to that than simply just talking about it. They want to trim around the edges because, I mean, what happens if you really did take away Social Security in America? It is a real question. I mean, conservatives haven't really answered that. If you really abolish Social Security, and look, Social Security is completely unconstitutional. There's no doubt about it. It is, it is something that cannot be justified. Same thing with Medicare, same thing with Medicaid, same thing with welfare, all of that. It's all unconstitutional. The question is, you're going to get people that are relying on these things. So, by the way, I mean, we look at what we're doing with the military. It's not unconstitutional, but it's really unjust and how much we're spending on the military. When you look at the amount of money that's being pumped in, or you take away, for example, subsidies to education in the United States, what happens when all that money goes away? People will vote for an idea that this stuff is wrong, but then, or at least in their mind, they'll conceptualize this stuff is wrong. But when it comes to brass tacks, you start saying, we got to cut stuff. All right, this is what Republicans do. All right, yeah, we're going to cut Social Security and Medicare and all that stuff. Or actually, take that back. We're going to cut food stamps, and we're going to cut Medicaid, and we're going to cut those things. We're going to cut that stuff because that doesn't really affect our constituents. And when the left says, you know what, we're going to cut, we're going to cut the military. We're going to cut the military budget because that doesn't affect our constituents. They're going to leave the sacred cows alone, even though Social Security is pretty much insolvent. They got to, something has to be done with that monstrosity. They're going to leave all the things alone because they know that's not politically popular. If you start talking about those things, now you're in real trouble. And so the left is better at the emotional game. You see, people look at the military as destructive when it really does make a lot of people money, and it also provides jobs for a large swath of the American population. Not just through soldiers themselves, as I talked about last week on a program. Not just through soldiers themselves, but through all the support that goes with it. Not for every hundred soldiers, you know, ninety-seven are support, three are in the field. But then you also have the massive complex, the industrial complex, military-industrial complex. It's either the contractors or all the things that support the military. It's a huge business in America. So you start cutting that. It's seen as corrupt, though. Whereas Social Security and Medicare and all that's not corrupt. They're just helping people. You see, there's an emotional play to that. But regardless. Wallace understood that these things, these programs, were popular. I mean, it's, it's kind of, if you go back to the unification of Germany with Bismarck, 
In his mind, he was creating a welfare state in Germany, which they did because that would, that would ward off socialism to an extent. You give people soft socialism, you know, old age pensions, some rudimentary health care, which really, when you look at Medicaid or Medicare, that's socialized medicine, VA. It's all socialized medicine. Uh, if you make under a certain amount or if you're elderly, you get free medical care. The people in the middle don't get it. That's what Obamacare, that was the gap. That was the cell. That was the gap. It covered everybody in the middle. Uh, but it's very expensive. I mean, this, this is where you get into all these arguments and debates and what is constitutional and what's not. We know the states could do all of this, though, and that's the issue. And it's I've had conversations with people who are interested in decentralization. And when they're really serious about it, they start asking these questions. Okay, well, if we leave the Union, for example, if Oklahoma was to secede from the Union, what would we do with Medicaid? What would we do with Social Security? What would we do with these programs? Because people are going to want them. And those are going to be some of the questions that are asked. All right, so we leave the Union. What happens to my paycheck from the federal government? We leave the Union. What happens to the subsidies that go into our K-12 through system? Or our college system? Where does all that money come from? And if you like those things, the answer then has to be, where well, you're going to pay higher taxes in our state. You see, what's happened, the states have gotten away with a lot because they've put the burden back on the general government. Okay, you pay higher federal taxes, but you pay very low state taxes. It should be flipped. You should be paying much higher state taxes and very little to the federal government. The federal government should tax you almost, it should be almost nothing to the federal government. The state should be taking your money for the services that it provides. But they've just pushed that off onto the federal government because it's more politically popular to do it. You can blame them for everything. They're the problem. Look at all this money Washington is wasting. Look at all the corruption. Look at this. We're not doing any of that here in our state. Our state is clean. We're, we're good. We've got ethics laws and all kinds of things. <clears throat> well, that's good. I mean, the state should be more receptive to the people. But when you look at the goods and services, all that should come from the state. Now, I say all this because there is this new national conservatism and I've talked about national conservatism before, and it has, it's, has a populist element to it. It's, it's the same kind of thing that we were looking at with George Wallace in the 1960s and 70s. That's where this comes from. It's, it's a certain element to it that goes back even to the post-war period, and I say the, po the post-bellum period, following Reconstruction, when you had the populist movement, you had a lot of people in America who were farmers at the time, mechanics, other people, blue-collar people, who realized that what they had done in the war was foist upon the entire United States an economic system that had been resisted by the South for decades. And now the South was emasculated and could no longer do it. And so these farmers, South, West, Midwest, they said, okay, wait a second here. We got to rein in this thing somehow. You got people making a lot of money in government subsidies, building rail lines, and getting rich on this stuff. And we're, the, we're not making anything out of it. Now, the, the reaction would be, well, you could. I mean, you could do that. You have Rags Rich's story. You have John D. Rockefeller. You have Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie, <laughs> Carnegie made a, a name for himself, not just with what became U.S. Steel, he made a billion dollars on that. Once he was done with that, he started writing these little dime store novels. How you could be a self-made man, rags to riches. Look, I'm Andrew Carnegie. I prove it can happen. How many Andrew Carnegies were there? There was one. 
How many John D. Rockefellers were there? There was one. So this kind of, you know, rags to riches tale in America was popular. And it's been popular in conservatives. And Carnegie really wasn't progressive, but he kind of portrayed himself as a conservative. Same thing with Rockefeller. I mean, these Rockefeller, but they're, they're, they're progressives. And that idea of progress, that material betterment, which is what many people do want that. They want to make more money. They want to be more comfortable. There's no, there's no doubt about it. In terms of material betterment, you can't really look at anyone and say that you know, materially, you're probably better off today than people were, say, 40 or 50 years ago, materially. Now, that's a loaded question. Even, But there's a piece, the Washington Times, came out a couple of weeks ago, and you have a Heritage Foundation fellow saying, you know, all this stuff that people are talking about in America right now, these national conservatives, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and even Marco Rubio, he's trying to, you know, capitalize on some of this stuff. All these things, people, it sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders. They're railing against corporations. Well, why are they railing against corporations? Because corporations now have been classified as people by the court system. And not just that, uh, these corporations are forcing a cultural and social agenda on the United States. They do it through advertising. They do it through sponsorships. They support other corporations that are foisting a woke cultural agenda on the United States. And so a lot of people are looking at this and saying, we don't like that. And so you've seen, of course, the backlash. We saw it with corporations, you know, Budweiser, for example, and some other corporations. They had to change their marketing at least somewhat. They didn't change it entirely. They changed it somewhat. It wasn't entirely revamped. But regardless, that pressure coming from corporations, coming come from individuals onto corporations, you know, Coca-Cola, other things. Uh, there has been some activity by these corporations to respond to that. They want to make money. But they also don't want to get sued or anything else for any kind of uh, civil rights violations. I mean, then you've got the litigation system. All, there's so many, so many tangles in this whole thing that it's very hard to unravel. But this is why these national conservatives... They're waging the culture war, just like George Wallace was, just like Pat Buchanan was, just like Donald Trump was. Ronald Reagan, the piece points out Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan wouldn't recognize these people. They wouldn't recognize governments here to help. The America was different in 1980 than it is in 2023. Demographically, America was different. The people that were in charge were different. 1980, you're still looking at the World War II generation. America was different in 1940 than it was even in 1980. And by the time it was 1990, it was really different. This is why you saw some of the commercials, you know, where there was a, a famous commercial back in the 90s when Buchanan was running uh, for president on the Reform Party. It was 96 or 2000. I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was 2000. And there was a very famous ad that he did where uh, the person's on the phone, you know, typical phone on the wall. Things have changed, right? They're appealing to a certain demographic, certain age group, and it's in Spanish. And that was seen as a popular kind of commercial because it was pointing out the problems with, uh, with this, what was called multiculturalism back then, diversity and these other things. And there was a, it was appealing to people, we got to have America first. Right? we got to have English spoken. It's a national language, these kind of things. But even America in 2000, 
is different than America in 2023. So this is where when you simply talk economics, when people look at it and say, yeah, all right, well, I've got a, I've got a bigger house than people. I mean, you go around, you look at houses built in the 1950s and 60s, they're small. One bathroom, maybe two bathrooms in the house. If you had an ensuite bathroom for the master, which was smaller, well, it was, I mean, you were doing something. Now, new construction homes are huge, particularly if you get out of the cities. Now, people living in cities or areas that you have, that you have, uh, people have to use older properties all the time. You still have some of these issues, but I mean, home renovations, you've seen massive expansion of capital from banks lending money, low interest rates, where people were able to go in and, and uh, you know, renovate their homes and do all kinds of things. Not everyone, but a lot of people have been. And yes, materially for a time, and this, this article the Washington Times points out, even Americans during Trump making $6,000 more annual than they had any time before that. Some of that, though, in real, it's, it's not real. Some of that is, well, you're, you've got more equity in your home and some other things like that. But regardless, that's where this economic appeal <clears throat> falls flat. And I, I, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from another piece that came from Law and Liberty. That was, somebody asked if I would cover it. This is a piece that's a couple years old. The title of this piece is The Chinese Communist Who Understands America. And I want to go to a part of this piece um, where he talks about what's really happening in America, where society is breaking down. He says, one revealing example that piques Wang's interest is the eternal tension or even conflict between freedom and equality the two pillars of the American creed. This is very important. The two pillars of the American creed. Wang notes freedom is an elastic concept subject to various interpretations and usages driven by different interests, whereas equality is more bounded. Now notice what's happening there. If you've read any cultural history, and I talked about cultural history last week, Albion Seed, African Founders, you know, that's David Hackett Fisher. He is spot on with this. Various regions and places in America have different concepts and different peoples have different concepts of the word freedom. What does it actually mean? Freedom is a part. Liberty, freedom. It's something that Americans talk a lot about. Is it freedom to or freedom from? What does this freedom actually mean? It's culturally driven. He's exactly right about that. Equality is more bounded. He says it's more bounded because equality of conditions when intertwined with freedom will essentially lead to inequality in outcomes. What the Western democratic system guarantees can only be political equality, not economic or social. But the problem is, as he says in the next paragraph, this demand for equality is turned to a demand for equity. And that is inconsistent with the American model. Equity. You can't have it if you have freedom. You cannot have freedom and equity in the same thing. Because once you get equity, you've destroyed freedom. That's the whole point, by the way. Or at least you've destroyed a freedom to. You may have created a freedom from for certain individuals. But you've destroyed a freedom to. There is a certain element to that. 
He says, the mainstream value, Wang concluded, was freedom. Wang writes, in an age when individualism prevails, the value of equality can hardly dominate. The statement runs contrary to the real 21st century America, where advocacy of equality has transmogrified over the past two decades into the demand for equity. The transformation happened in a society where atomized individuals were aggressively severing their bonds through traditions, cultural inheritance, family, and now even biology. Yes. What happens with this? Equity is the byproduct of a severance of tradition. Now, you could say these freedom ways and liberty ways, freedom from, is a certain tradition. It's a puritanical tradition in America coming out of New England, right? But the important thing to note here is that when you start to do this, you start to sever these things. And when you talk about the middle class, what has held the middle class together over generations? Well, it's a belief that there is a positive outcome. Things are going to get better. That's important. They've lost that belief because they're looking at inflation and they're looking at job markets and they're looking at all these things. They're seeing certain parts of society closed down, certain doors closed to them. Young men in particular are seeing things in a way that doesn't really it doesn't work for them anymore. I mean, college isn't their thing. They don't like that stuff. Right? The, the ways forward have been narrowed for them. So there's a certain amount of depression that comes out of that. They're seeing the, the breakdown of traditions which allowed some stability in their mind for the future. So as you get equality, you see these traditions break down and it creates a certain disconnect in society, particularly middle-class society, particularly traditional middle-class society. They're losing the family. They're losing the cultural inheritance. It's being melted down right in front of their face while people jump around and cheer about it or destroyed. They're losing all of those things in the name of equality. This is what Wallace and Buchanan and Trump and now these national conservatives who are in many ways faux you know, culture war warriors. But this is what they're seeing. It's what they were tapping into. They could already start seeing it 50 years ago. It was already coming. Heck, you could go back in the late 19th century and people like R.L. Dabney were already talking about it. Richard Weaver was talking about it in the middle of the 20th century, even before George Wallace. People were talking about this. The piece says, though Wang could not fully grasp the relations among individualism, liberalism, freedom, and equality, his worry about individualism, which reached a climax in the last chapter entitled The Undercurrents of Crisis, was prescient in another way. Imprinted with Confucian field of piety, piety, Wang completely objects to the American familial mode, which, in his view, is too individualistic, too contractual, too loose. Consequently, Wang notes, family is no longer the cell of American society. The real cell is the individual, he writes. This means that the American family has lost its societal function of educating the youth, supporting the elder, and ameliorating interpersonal conflicts. Government, therefore, had to take on the role of the nanny. Now, this is a beautiful paragraph. If you go back and look at John Randolph of Roanoke in the 1820s, why was he against 
government. Why was he against all of these things from government? For this very reason. Because when you when you substitute government for the family, when you substitute government for the community, you've lost all of the freedom of that community. You might be solving a problem, meaning that you're taking care of this person or that person uh, without you having to do it yourself. Somebody else is going to do it. It takes that off of your hands. But you've lost the responsibility and you've lost the community involvement in those things. When you remove the role of the family in education, for example, and you pass it off to the schools, well, you've lost that connection with family. When you, when you take uh, old people and you remove the nucleus, the family has become so disjointed and you just pass it off to somebody else. Well, you've removed responsibility from that. Interpersonal conflicts. You get government involved instead of the community being involved. He's pointing out something that's very important that Wallace and Buchanan and Trump and everyone, I mean, this is what they're... Uh, Trump is different than Wallace and Buchanan, who I think were more interested in these things, really interested in these things. You've now created a situation where you've lost the fabric of society. The middle class is more accurately just the people in America who are interested in stability and order. It was the silent majority, as Nixon called it. Stability and order and, and the known over the unknown. It's, it's the known over the innovators. Experience must guide us. Reason may mislead us. It's the known over the unknown. The piece says, Wang sees perverted nihilistic individualism as the biggest threat to America because it dissolves the traditional Western value system, and when that value system collapses, Western democracy inevitably dies as well. So, what he's attacking here are ideas, right? He's saying the, the values, it's, not, it's, it's ideas versus values. Or, more importantly, tradition versus ideology. He's saying ideology is winning out in America and it's destroying America because the traditions are being eroded away because of ideas. And when you look at the left, it's all ideology. There's nothing traditional about it. It's moving the goalpost. It's saying these things, we have to do these, these, and these. Why? Why? The question is never, it's, well, because of equality. Because it makes us feel better. Because it's better. How? I mean, have, has what the left has done and what we've accepted, has that made American society better? Has it made it worse? I mean, these are you can measure these things. You can measure it in cultural value. You can measure it in, in uh, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, cultural norms, you know, two-parent families, stability, drug use, whatever, alcoholism, you know, suicide rates, whatever you want to look at. For people, how are these things, are we better? Are politics better? Is there less corruption in government? I mean, are these things better? Do we spend less money? Are we more fiscally stable? Well, if these things are better, well, then all this stuff has worked. But if you look at it and say it's all worse, then all this stuff is, this is what's contributed to it. So this is where I wanted to put these two pieces together. This piece, which was asked for me to comment on that. That one part of it. 
was the most important part in the entire piece because it brings up what Buchanan and all these others have been talking about for 50 years now and even go back further than that. I mean, we could take this back into, again, John Randolph of Roanoke and the old Republicans back in the 19th century. That's the important thing to get out of this. That's why national conservatism has an appeal to the middle class. You can't just measure this in economics. Say, hey, you guys are better. Look at all the things you're better. You got more money. You got more comforts. You got that stuff. But people are looking around and saying, all right, yeah, I might have these things. But first of all, I mean, everything's more expensive. I feel like I don't have as much. But not just that. All right, yeah, I've got all that stuff. But is everything really better? Or, or my, or my, is my family better off? Not just financially, but what about emotionally? What about stability? What about education? What about all these things? Is that really better off or not? Those are really big questions and ones that are questions that are much more difficult to answer through a simple quantitative analysis of your bottom line in your 401k. That's where conservatism, if you just simply rely on economic arguments, misses the mark. When I say economic, I mean material progress. It misses the mark. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.